1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here is why you should tune into today's show. Visa signals long term bullishness on Ethereum. We'll discuss why StarkNet could be the key to making auto payments possible with Starkware co-founder Eli Ben Sassen. He will join us live shortly. There are also fresh concerns about Binance and DCG, but good news for some BlockFi users. We'll bring you the latest details on that. And finally, we will hear from Wendy O on self sovereignty through Bitcoin and the importance of NFTs for artists. I'm Jeremy Varlow, Ash Bennington is with me A jam packed show today, Ash, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's great
2: to be back with you. News flow coming in fast and thick.
1: It certainly is. And I know that you're supposed to be on vacation. We put that bat signal up in the air for you last night and you jumped on with us today. We've got a great interview with Ellie very shortly. Before we begin, if you're still wondering, like myself, what to buy that special someone for Christmas, why not consider a Real Vision subscription? You can do it by heading over to realvision.com giftguide gift guide. With that said, let's jump into the latest price action. Bitcoin is trading higher on the day. It's recovering after falling as low as $16,400. It remains stuck below $17,000 though. Ash, what's it like on the Ethereum side?
2: Jeremy, ETH is up some 2% on a 24-hour basis. ETH managed to climb above $1,200, but ETH remains down heavily on a trailing seven-day basis, Jeremy.
1: Thank you for that, Ash. Let's jump into our top story of the day we want to bring Ellie in here very shortly. Uh, We may be in a crypto winter, but many institutions remain optimistic on the long-term potential of the blockchain. One of them, of course, is Visa, which has been exploring how to make on-chain recurring payments possible for self-custody wallets. Ash, there was a paper released by Visa yesterday. It appeared to be quite bullish on Ethereum. What did it say exactly? Well, the paper,
2: which came from Visa's crypto thought leadership last night, outlined how the firm could collaborate with the Ethereum network. The aim is to enable automatic payments from self-custody wallets. It's a common feature in mobile banking, but one that is not currently possible on the Ethereum network. Mainnet. One of the obstacles is the number of transactions that Ethereum can process. However, a proposal called account abstraction could change that. It would allow Ethereum users to account, user accounts to function essentially like smart contracts, Jeremy, if that makes sense, uh, and feature pre scheduled execution functions so that you could obviously schedule bill pays uh, and other types of transactions. Visa says that Starknet, a layer two blockchain built on top of Ethereum, may help bridge the gap. In Ethereum functionality, and with that said, we are very fortunate to have with us Ellie Ben Sasson Starkware, co-founder and president, with us today. Welcome back to Real Vision, Ellie.
3: Thanks, Ash. Thanks, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. A ple- pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah.
2: So, Ellie, tell us about the news.
3: So, first of all, the first thing to say is that the news caught us, like everyone else, a little bit by surprise. A very pleasant surprise uh, coming with the holidays. Um, because we, we didn't know that they're working on this or using the account abstraction that we have for StarkNet. So that's, you know, we were pleasantly surprised, but that's part of building a uh, permissionless uh, layer two. Um, it allows a- everyone and anyone to do what they want. And uh, so we didn't know of this and we're very happy. Um, and then what happened is that they used the the account abstraction that is now uh, functional on StarkNet because it's a, really darn good suggestion. This is a suggestion made by uh, Vitalik Buterin, um, um, a few others, I want to give them credit by name because they sure. did a really great job. So this was a suggestion by Vitalik Buterin, Yoav Weiss, Christoph Gazo, uh, Namra Patel, Dro Tiro, Afnas and Tiaden Hess, which basically um, really gives a very beautiful way of um, separating the need to take your cumbersome you know 24 secret word kind of thing and use it on each and every transaction and just making um signing on transactions a process that could be fully automated and then streamlined with other things like uh auto payments
2: Elliot, it's really fascinating, I think, for people who come to us from the TradFi space to hear uh, that you guys just found out about it as well. But as you say, this is the beauty of permissionless networks. You guys build an abstraction layer uh, on top of Ethereum. Talk a little bit about uh, that, just to bring people up to speed uh, on what exactly the scaling challenges were that you faced on Ethereum uh, before we get into a little bit more uh, about this Visa news.
3: So Ethereum has amazing security because it is based on the premise that everyone verifies everything. It's very inclusive, which is really great. It's much, much better than the traditional world where you have to rely on various central parties that can censor and arbitrarily block you. So it's really a great model, but it means if you want everyone to use their laptop in order to verify that everything's okay, you limit scale. So basically what StarkNet is and what all of StarkRose technology is about, is about drastically and exponentially increasing the scale of Ethereum without relinquishing or decreasing the uh, beautiful assumptions of inclusivity and permissionlessness. So that's the grand challenge that we took on ourselves, you know, four years ago when we founded the company and we've been very successful at going at this challenge. StarkNet takes this scalability um, ability and now makes it permissionless and usable by everyone, even a small company like Visa. (laughs) Well, listen, Elliot, I know that you weren't
2: involved in the development of the Visa aspect of this, but I know you have read all the press releases on it. Give us a little bit of context on precisely how Starkware is facilitating this solution. I think a lot of people may think, uh, well, you know, scheduled transactions, this is simple. This is something I've been doing for a decade uh, on my computer. Uh, Talk a little bit about what some of the challenges specifically for recurring payments uh, and pre-scheduled execution would be on a blockchain. And then, of course, how The starkware software as an intermediary layer as a layer two between ethereum and the visa network interacts
3: so this is how i'd explain it to my mom on ethereum um you control your funds and the way you control your funds you have this very safe uh you know huge key like they have the movies from the um from the you know uh, medieval times like it's very big it's very cumbersome tie it on a chain to your neck and you walk with it and every time you want to make a payment you need to put this particular kind of key in and you know turn it so it's very cumbersome now with account abstraction you say well you know we're, we're in the 21st century you could write any program that you want and say this program will be in charge of uh you know my funds and once you allow that um you can have auto payments you can have social recovery you don't need to carry this uh, right, uh, uh, key on your chain. You can do any kind of functionality that you want and you can support existing TradFi infrastructure such as Visa.
2: Let me ask you this, Ellie, to get back to this metaphor here of the big keychain versus the small keychain, can you then set limits? For example, uh, you may want to say, look, I'm, I'm comfortable with bill pay up to 500 bucks, but, you know, maybe that's an account that you have 50,000 or 100,000 uh, in Ethan, and you want to partition it so that you can only allow those small transactions. Is that
3: something that the network facilitates? Yes, precisely because again, in the in the uh, medieval key, you have one key to your big safe and all your funds are there and you need to go in and take out whatever, $500 and give it to say, Mr. Bill Gates. But in the modern version of the system with this account abstraction, which is part of just the basic layer of StarkNet, you could write a program that says, no matter how many funds, how much funds I have in my uh, account, If the name is Bill Gates, or if it's anyone, you know, no more than $500 can leave this uh, account in a day. And this computer program will be enforced by the Ethereum network and by Starknet, so no one can deviate from it. So that's the difference between having one cumbersome key and the ability to craft any program and any policy on your funds.
2: So essentially it becomes programmable. You could say, for example, uh, the limit is $500. These are the whitelisted uh, payees. These are the blacklisted payees. Uh, and by the way, uh, you can't make any transactions between Friday at 4 p.m. and, you know, Monday morning
3: at 9 a.m., for example. Precisely. And your kids could have, you know, an allowance once per week they can go. But if it's the, uh, you know, the holiday season, maybe they get twice that. You can allow uh, periodic payments from uh um, uh, payment processors such as a Visa. You could have social recovery. You could have, you know, God forbid, if you need to talk about like estate and gifts and things like that, you could have automatic transferability um, in case uh, someone transpires and things like that. Okay, let's talk about
2: some of the risks, specifically from a security perspective. Uh, where are those security protocols enforced uh, and what are the potential downsides, risks, and problems that might occur?
3: So, In 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 the old key model, right? The the, the, it's a very simple mechanism, and it's very very uh, it's been used for a while. But the downside is, uh, if you lose these twenty four words, if you lose this key, all of your funds are gone. Now, in the new regime, uh, first of all, whenever you write new code, you have to worry whether it is safe. You know, it it needs to be audited, uh, written properly. So that there's a whole question of bugs and safety in that world. That's certainly going to be initially. Uh, for for a while hopefully teams like uh, visa with their immense brain power and credibility can help standardize you know the kind of uh, safe payments for things like auto payments and so on so they're going to be um basically risk models in the end you're giving allowance to something right either uh, uh, you know a secret number in the old model or to some program and in both cases if there's a bug or a glitch or, you know, the numbers get lost or something and bad stuff can happen. So account abstraction does not resolve all problems in the world, but it gives you a lot more flexibility to deal with the dangers and have different security profiles.
2: Talk a little bit about how you uh, conduct this under an open source model, uh, what the testing looks like. Do you do bug bounties? Uh, Give us a little bit of a sense, because obviously we've seen uh, in this space as we come to the end here of 2022, there have been some uh, very, let's just say, prominent failures in the space that resulted in folks losing uh, a great deal of funds. Give us a little sense of how you think about that framework uh, from a process perspective, Ellie.
3: So there's no better disinfectant than the uh, light of uh, daylight. I think uh, Judge uh, Louis Brandeis said it a while ago. He didn't think about blockchain code, but it certainly applies there as well. So <clears throat> all of the source is available. It's modifiable. The um, protocols for this are and the code is uh, open source and can be used. Um, it's being audited um, by more than one firm. And, um, you know, basically, that's the best we can do, right? Uh, and I must say that most of the catastrophic failures that we are all aware of happened without any sunlight uh, you know, right. shining in on them and not on these public protocols. It was all about uh, misappropriation of funds done without trust.
2: Hey, Ellie, one final question for you, something we were talking about uh, off camera here, the distinction between Starkware and Starknet.
3: So Starkware is a company. Starkware is a company that is binned up uh, StarkNet, but Starkware is making StarkNet basically uh, a permissionless, open public good. Um, in particular, there's actually a StarkNet foundation, and uh, uh, so Starkware will basically take you know two steps back and be part of hopefully a very big ecosystem of developers. I hope Visa is going to be one of the participants in this ecosystem that maintains and advances StarkNet as a public good for all, just like Ethereum.
2: ellie always a pleasure to have you on the show and thanks for coming on at such short notice with this news
3: thanks ash thanks jeremy
2: hi hey everyone we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners we'll be right back jeremy i understand we have some additional news flow on binance
1: we certainly do ash Uh, it is no surprise that binance remains in the spotlight we have a couple of new angles to bring to your attention today first Bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital says it has agreed to sell its assets to Binance US for $1 billion. Ash, give me some context here.
2: Yeah, so Voyager Digital was one of several high-profile crypto blow-ups this year. Obviously, it filed for bankruptcy back in July of 2022. Binance took part in an auction for Voyager's assets, but it was FTX actually, that won back in September. Obviously, that was canceled after the FTX bankruptcy in November. Now it seems that Binance will end up being the winner after all. It's worth emphasizing that this is the U.S. entity of Binance that's buying Voyager, California-based Binance U.S., which operates as an independent legal entity and has a licensing agreement with Binance. Reuters reports that most of the $1 billion valuation consists of debt Voyager owes to its clients, Jeremy.
1: Wow. Uh, Speaking of Reuters, they have another Binance related story. It published a special report about the exchange's finances. Ash, what did we learn from that report?
2: Uh, Jeremy, it's fair to say that the report is highly critical of Binance, to put it mildly. The journalist tried to dig in deep into the finances of the crypto exchange, Binance.com. That's Binance's core business, which has has processed $22 trillion in trades this year. Obviously, that's an enormous number. But the news outlet says Binance's books are, quote, a black box. Let me read this quote from the article, quote, Binance declines to say where Binance is dot com is based it doesn't disclose basic financial information such as revenue profit and cash reserves the quote continues the company has its own crypto coin but doesn't reveal what role it plays on its balance sheet it lends customer money against their crypto assets and lets them trade on margin with borrowed funds but it doesn't detail how big those bets are how exposed binance is to the risk or the full extent of its reserves to finance withdrawals. Close quote. Reuters also says Binance actively avoids oversight and that the information it has revealed so far remains scant. The news outlet also mentions ongoing US Department of Justice investigation into Binance. Plus, the fact that an auditing team, uh, an auditing firm implied by Binance, this is Mazars, to perform proof of reserve report has halted all crypto related work and has dropped all of their crypto clients, obviously, including Binance. Binance has challenged Reuters accusations using very strong language. Binance chief strategy officer Patrick Hillman told Reuters its analysis was, quote, categorically false. Close quote. He said all user funds are fully backed and that the company is financially secure. So obviously this is a this is a big story coming out of Reuters uh, and it's a significant one uh, in terms of the level uh, of accusations or claims being made and obviously the counterclaim uh, from Binance saying essentially that the Reuters report is effectively wrong, I guess it's fair to say. Uh, so there's a lot there, Jeremy, and a lot to process, obviously.
1: Yeah, certainly some strong words from Reuters there. We'll continue to cover all the latest developments on finance here on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Uh, another story that we're covering today, we spoke about Voyager obviously, but there's also news about its former competitor BlockFi. Just like Voyager, BlockFi also filed for bankruptcy. Now the company wants to allow some users to withdraw funds. Ash, who's, uh, who's looking like they could be getting their money back here?
2: so blockfi stopped customer withdrawals on november 10th a few weeks later shortly after ftx collapsed BlockFi filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in a new u.s court filing the company said it wants to allow users who had funds in blockfi wallets specifically to be able to withdraw their funds quote it is our belief that clients unambiguously own their digital assets in their blockfi wallet accounts close quote the company says it's seeking similar relief From the supreme court of bermuda so obviously this is a multi-jurisdictional issue which complicates things Uh, that approval would apply to users funds in blockfi wallets held at blockfi international Uh, here's the important proviso and this is the important thing for users who have accounts held on blockfi to understand the motion does not impact withdrawals or transfers from blockfi interest accounts which remain suspended That distinction between BlockFi wallets and BlockFi interest accounts is the crucial distinction here, Jeremy, in terms of users who are listening to this news and trying to understand whether or not it applies to them.
1: Thank you for that, Ash. Uh, The final story we want to look at today, an important but less visible part of the crypto market. We know crypto lender Genesis Capital is in a difficult financial uh, situation. The company halted Redemption's. Genesis is owned by crypto conglomerate DCG, the digital currency group. Now, according to sources speaking to the Financial Times, a Genesis bankruptcy would leave DCG with a costly loan repayment. DCG would have to immediately make a $350 million payout to financier Todd Bailey. The Financial Times says the loan ranks higher than other debt and would have to be repaid in the first instance. Ash, contagion seems to run far and deep. You've been following the story extremely closely from the start. What do you make of it?
2: Well, you know, at very least, it's fair to say contagion risk runs very deep. Obviously, uh, we're talking about Binance. We're talking about DCG. It's important to note uh, that these funds are currently still solvent. They are not bankrupt. Uh, and there's no reason uh, to to uh, believe at this point that that's something that's imminent. But it is important for us to watch these stories to understand where the contagion risk uh, may occur next. And sort of that's always the balancing act that you have when reporting on these stories, uh, is trying to figure out how to talk about this in the most neutral possible language. Obviously, uh, this report coming out of the F this broke uh, early morning hours US time, uh, is the new bit of news here. Uh, obviously, that's a pretty significant payout, this $350 million payout, uh, according to the FT owed to uh, Todd Bailey uh, as a as a higher ranking loan. But I really wanted to give a little bit more context here and to, and to break down what's happening uh, at DCG uh, slash Grayscale slash Genesis at a bit more uh, granular level. Obviously, DCG is the holding company. There are a series of portfolio companies or operating companies underneath that. Uh, one of them, of course, is Coindesk, which many of our viewers know. Uh, and, of course, uh, G- the uh, the Grayscale, uh, which owns Grayscale Investments, I should say, which owns GBTC, uh, the Grayscale BitCount Coin Trust, and also Genesis, which is what we're talking about here in this story. But all of these things are interlinked, and it's understanding those interlinkages uh, that's really so critical. I want to start uh, here by talking about the end of year investor letter from Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein, which came out yesterday let's start if we can bring up the chart uh, of the GBTC discount Uh, this is this is obviously a significant story Uh, this number has come in a little bit I don't know if we're able to show that chart in the screen Uh, but it's trading now at about a 46% discount I think it had been down as low as uh, as 48 uh, yesterday or the day before so a significant discount uh, at its low trading at nearly 50 cents on the dollar Uh, you know basically this investor letter, that, that Bitcoin uh, trust chart, the GBTC chart, just give you a sense of what the market reaction is to some of this news flow. And we're going to talk about that news flow right now and do a little bit of a deep dive here because I think it's really important for folks to understand uh, what this is all about. So basically, the investor letter uh, spells out a plan A and a plan B. Uh, at least as I see it, obviously, I'm not a lawyer. This is just my interpretation of reading the letter. But I wanted to give you some some of the actual quotes from this so you can understand what's happening here behind the scenes at Grayscale, which is also part of DCG. The letter says, quote, We remain steadfast in our belief that the conversion of GBTC to an ETF is in the best interest of investors, and we remain 100% committed to that endeavor. This is and always has been the business priority of the Grayscale team. So what they're saying here essentially is they really want to be able to trade this GBTC uh, to transition it. From a closed-end fund into an ETF. That's their first. That's their. That's their primary commitment, as they describe here in this letter. Uh, So it then goes on to give more detail about what's happening in terms of the process for this. Uh, This is Grayscale's initial filing. Quote: Our lawsuit against the SEC is progressing. We filed our opening brief on October 11, 2022. So this is the initial brief uh, in their filing uh, against SEC to convert this fund, this closed end fund into an ETF. It then goes on to explain what happens next. Quote, the SEC recently submitted its reply, and we are currently drafting our response to the SEC, which is due January 13, 2023, so obviously in a few weeks, uh, with final written briefs due on February 3, 2023. Shortly thereafter, a three-judge panel will be selected to hear oral arguments and rule on the case. So that's the timetable. Uh, the expectation for some resolution on this uh, is coming in February. Uh, Mr. Sunshine then goes on to say, We remain confident that the DC Court of Appeals, that's where this is being heard, will agree with our strong common sense and compelling legal arguments. But we also appreciate investors Interest in what happens to GBTC if the courts do not rule in our favor, if we are not successful in our legal challenge in all applicable courts, and we conclude there is no possibility of legislative or regulatory clarity that would allow for the conversion of GBTC to an ETF within a reasonable time frame, we would explore other options to return a portion of GBTC's capital to the shareholders. End quote. Okay, here's where it gets interesting. The letter then picks up on the other options that they describe above that Grayscale might explore. Quote, these options would include a tender offer for a portion of the outstanding shares of GBTC. We currently expect that such a tender offer would be for no more than 20% of the outstanding shares of GBTC. To facilitate this, we would be required to obtain two separate approvals. And here's the meat of it. It goes on to detail what those two separate approvals would be. Quote, one, one. The relief from SEC from certain requirements applicable under to tender offers in order to ensure that the tender offer is fair to all investors. And this is really the striking part of this letter. The SEC may not provide this relief in which case GBTC would not be able to pursue such a tender offer. And then quote two, uh, here is the second second component of this, is furthermore because GBTC trust agreement does not currently permit redemptions or repurchases of shares by GBTC, GBTC's ability to conduct such a tender offer would also be subject to receipt of shareholder approval for an amendment uh, to GBTC's trust agreement. Okay, here's what's interesting to me about this, Jeremy. You basically have a plan A and a plan B. And what's interesting about those is that Under the current law, under the current regulation, under the current uh, sort of uh, supervisory framework, neither option A nor option B is currently allowed. Specifically, you need a three-court appellate judge Panel down in Washington D.C. Uh, to agree to transition this from a closed-end fund to an open-end fund. If that is the, it seems to be based on the way this letter is written, the primary goal uh, of the folks over at Grayscale. So you need a judge uh, or three judges rather to find in your favor to do that. The second option uh, requires this uh, this rulemaking variance uh, from SEC, who they're currently suing uh, in this other uh, unrelated action. So. You know, obviously, this this is is suggestive of this idea that you have to get a regulatory. Uh forbearance, uh, or a rule change from SEC, or you need a panel to rule in your favor. What's interesting is Plan C. There is no Plan C listed in this newsletter. Uh, now, look, it's important to state, obviously, we don't have anyone here uh, from Grayscale, and I'm sure they they would probably have some color and some context to add around this. Uh, but based on this letter, no Plan C is stated. There may certainly be a Plan C that we're not aware of uh, that the folks of Grayscale are thinking about. But, you know, right now, that's that's the challenge, at least at least as I read it. I would further add that there was some additional reporting several weeks ago from the Financial Times, particularly in reference to this new story with Mr. Bailey and the priority on the Genesis loan, uh, that suggests from the FT reporting that the that there essentially are. Uh, These sort of interlinkages between these portfolio companies and the uh, holding company, uh, DCG, and within the portfolio companies potentially, just based on the Financial Times reporting, again, sourcing that to the Financial Times. But there obviously are a lot of questions out there, and and we're going to have to see what happens next. Uh, but this is definitely an interesting story to watch it's one of the stories that i'm watching uh, i think most closely right now because i think it is uh, i think it is an important one as exactly as you suggested jeremy around this idea of contagion risk
1: yeah certainly ash thank you for kind of unpacking that for us and giving us your insight uh also if you're interested in learning more about bitcoin etfs we had a great interview with Leo wald of valkyrie investments yesterday on the real vision crypto daily briefing so please Head over there and check that out. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. We have one more little treat for you today, a little stocking stuffer, so to speak. Uh, A few days ago, we spoke with a popular crypto YouTuber, Wendy O, the host of The O Show. She shared her thoughts about the power of self-sovereignty through Bitcoin and why NFTs offer a critical lifeline to musicians. Take a listen.
0: Okay, guys, so I'm Wendy O, or Crypto Wendy O, and I'm just a mom who likes to talk about cryptocurrency, NFTs, Bitcoin, self-sovereignty, liberty, and um, critical thinking. It's important to me. So there's, there's like subsets of crypto. So we have Bitcoin, we have altcoins, and we have NFTs. And not every single cryptocurrency is created equal. So there are some bad projects out there that aren't the best. But I do think that Bitcoin in general does have the tools to help people become self-sovereign. And I think it's important to kind of start at Bitcoin's white paper, read it, understand what that means. If you're um, a little bit younger than I am and you don't know what happened in 2008 when we talk about the financial crash, um, people lost their homes, they lost their livelihoods. And that's why Bitcoin was created. It was created for the people, by the people to help people improve their quality of life. Crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs, they allow for self-sovereignty, they allow for ownership. You get to actually own your intangible assets or some of those even could directly relate to tangible assets. But but it allows the average person to kind of get away from these societal norms that we're so n- used to that aren't necessarily good so decentralization is a very hard topic to discuss because when you're talking about operating in a true decentralized economy that basically means that i get to do what i want you get to do what you want and If we don't like what each other's doing, we could voice our opinions, but I don't get to stop you doing what you're doing. I don't get to stop you transacting with somebody. You don't get to stop me from transacting and you don't get to stop when I'm sending money to somebody or doing something. That's what that means. And I'm a big proponent of live free, harm none. And basically, I think that people should be able to operate the way that they want to operate just as long as they're not inflicting any type of harm or damage or anything that's unsafe to another person. And I think that Bitcoin and crypto NFTs do facilitate that. But at the same time, it's very hard to operate in a true decentralized economy because humans have these things called emotions. And we look to those sometimes to give us bias when it comes to operating in a true decentralized economy. But being self-sovereign is just being able to have complete control of your money and do whatever it is you want with it. I'm going to be very positive with the outlook for the future, but I also will ask for a call to action. And that's basically if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, um, make sure to write to your, to the Senate, write to Congress, write to your public servants, write to the SEC, write to the CFTC. Don't be silly. Don't be complacent. Like go, you know, reach out to your local city council and say, Hey, we like crypto. This is why we like it. These are the problems that it could fix because crypto fixes a lot of problems. It's not perfect, but it can improve a lot of different things. We're talking about transparency, we're talking about payments, we're talking about settlements, ownership, those types of things. And I think it's important that we all make our voices heard and we help push a positive narrative for crypto and say, hey, not everybody in crypto is bad. This is how it's helped me, et cetera. So going forward, hopefully we can work towards that. But I do anticipate quarter one of 2023 being immensely rough when it comes to laws and regulations. Well, self-sovereignty is one of them. Another one is um, transparency when it comes to public servants and our the spending and the taxes. I would love to know where every single cent of my taxpayer dollars go, every single cent. I'm born and raised in L.A. County. L.A. County brings in a lot of money in tax revenue. There is no reason why any public school should be a three out of 10. There is no reason why we should have bad schools and bad neighborhoods. If anything, we should be taking taxpayer dollars and having 10 out of 10 schools and having programs, having childcare, all these different programs to actually help people thrive. Create more community centers to help our kids thrive and do better. And again, it still does take you know responsibility and action from the other party. But if you have these facilities there and available, things will positively change. But I want to be able to see where my money is going. I don't want to pay $3 million for a pothole to be fixed when it would only cost a $1 million from a local contractor. I'm being dead serious. Like my daughter's father is an electrical contractor. He cannot get jobs from the city of LA County, in LA County, the government jobs, because they only hire select few contractors. He's a small business. He kept like 25 people employed during COVID, and that was 25 families that were able to eat when things were really, really rough. So the fact that his company can't even be considered to get these bids because he doesn't have those connections. Is problematic. And I want to know who's getting those bids and why they're getting these bids and how much we're paying. Because at the end of the day, if we can save money on getting the same service, number one, we want to support small businesses. And number two, we want to be able to find figure out where this money is going and maybe allocate it to other places that could help our children and help, you know, some of the underserved areas. So when we're talking about using Bitcoin, well, and most altcoins, unless you're using a privacy coin, um, basically a ledger is something that's public. It's open. You can view it. You either need a contract address or a um, or a transaction or a trans excuse me transaction address um, or somebody's wallet address, and you can basically track to see where the money is going, which is absolutely fantastic. So the reason why we want to see this is we want to be able to track and see you know who's sending who money, where it's going, and what it's being spent on, and I think that cryptocurrency is a really great tool for that. When we talk about NFTs. Um, a lot of public records could be used as NFTs for ownership to prove so and so bought this house or this property or had this repair done. There's a lot of different use cases, and also too for charities. I helped raise close to fifty thousand dollars for a local nonprofit in LA County, and um, you know you're able to see where the money's going that way or who you know who's accepting, etc. And I would love to see a lot of these big organizations, these big, big, big charities that get so much money. Be more transparent where that money is actually going how much is going to their administrative efforts and how many is going to the actual charity i love nfts because i love music men um i have a lot of friends that were musicians. it's true i do i love them very much um, but i have a lot of friends in the industry i've seen these guys pour their heart and souls into creating things and they just got terrible behavior from the music industry and from the record labels. People don't understand how much goes into that. They don't understand that when you watch a movie that the movie rights are sold on the back end and et cetera, and that NFTs uh, grant ownership to your art to your things. I'm not talking about the 10,000 generative pieces. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the people that are out there creating my my papa, he was a jazz drummer. My great or my aunt, she was a guitar playing artist. And just it's just if they would have had that technology back then, things could have been different. And a couple of my friends that did really, really well in the 90s, they really had massive followings, even in some on the early MySpace days. If they would have had the NFT technology, they would there would have been no need for the record labels anyway, shape or form. Because what the NFTs do, if you're what the NFTs, do they give you ownership and then you can sell them. You can do all these really great things and still maintain your masters and your licensing, and your merchandising, all your rights and just sell it how you please. Yeah. So, for example, let's say you're somebody who has a really expensive baseball card. You could actually authentic- have that authenticated and you can have an NFT that matches that. It's great for collectibles. It's great for records. It's great for real estate. Um, I, it's great for concert tickets showing that you attended somewhere, that you went somewhere. Let's, there's a big problem with, ta- with um, tru- tru- um, tardy, not tardiness. Um, what is it called when you, when you miss school? Truancy. Truancy. I thought that's what it was. Sorry, I apologize. I'm a little bit sick. So there's a big problem with that. And the way a lot of the public schools get funded is you have X amount of students that show up. And we found out in L.A. County that a lot of the schools are fudging their numbers. So if you have an NFT that shows that this kid checked in for school, then you could say, hey, I deserve to get my funding. Let's do this. Or let's say, for example, you're a community center. You're like, hey, I need funding and I've got 300 kids that come every day at four o'clock. And you can say I have proof here it's real because they would actually have to physically come in and scan their NFT or like whatever that is. But there's different use cases. And we're, if we're talking about places, for example, my dad's family. Um, his father, they were Romanian Jews. They came to the United States to escape what was happening back around 1910 to 1930s. All of my family records in Romania are completely destroyed. They're gone. NFTs are a great way to store records so that you can still have, um, history that, you know, some, this person did X, Y, and Z or whatever. So those are just some of the use cases. There is a lot more. We're still very early with NFTs, but I think that they do have the opportunity to really change, change the world. The key takeaway here is that you are all very intelligent and capable to thrive in crypto uh, or any industry. And I wish that you would all take 10 minutes every single day to continue to educate yourself, whether it's in technical analysis, whether it's in um, understanding how blockchain works, whether it's learning to code, whether it's learning to trade, whatever that is. But take 10 minutes out of your day and continue to educate yourself and expand your mind. Don't make rash decisions. Don't just think that crypto is a get rich scheme because it's not don't think crypto is a scam because it's not hear what i say but listen to yourself always seek for the search search the truth search for the truth and look at different media outlets look at different sources and sometimes consult your enemy to get a different perspective on something and don't ever judge a book by its cover
1: that was awesome thank you very much to Wendy O for joining us and answering some questions some great insight there from her uh, also Ellie Ben Sassen from Starkware a great conversation today with Ash. We're coming to the end of the show, but as always, we have some key takeaways for you. I'll start with mine. Uh, In spite of all the turmoil turmoil surrounding the crypto ecosystem of late, major institutions and companies continue to adopt blockchain technology, with Visa continuing their foray into the space, the company exploring how to make on-chain recurring payments possible for self-custody wallets using Ethereum Layer 2 network StarkNet, very exciting development for broader adoption and one that Ellie mentioned came as a complete surprise to the Starkware team, which is obviously a resounding endorsement for permissionless protocols and technology. Uh, My second takeaway of the day obviously surrounds Binance, who continue to find themselves in the news for a couple of reasons. First, uh, with crypto lender Voyager, but also they remain in the crosshairs with a report from Reuters in which Reuters continues to raise questions about the finances of the companies. Uh, Reuters reporters commenting that Binance's books continue to be a, quote, black box and that the company doesn't disclose basic financial information, such as revenue, profit, and cash reserves. Those are my key takeaways. Any final thoughts from your end, Ash?
2: Yeah, I've only got one sort of big takeaway here. Uh, which is about what we're focusing on, what I'm focusing on, uh, on this story right now. Look, there are gonna be a lot of stories out there uh, about whether Sam bankman fried is getting vegetarian or vegan males uh, in prison, uh, the extradition fight, which of his lawyers agree and disagree, uh, the legal, uh, you know, intra-legal team battles. I think the most interesting thing and the most important thing to be focusing on in this space is what happens next Is there another shoe to drop? Uh, And if so, which? Obviously, we're gonna be watching Binance and DCG very closely, but I have to say, uh, just in the interest of fairness, uh, there's no indication that there's an imminent failure on behalf of either of those two companies. That's gonna happen today, tomorrow, the next day. So we have to be fair, we have to be balanced about the way that we report this. Obviously, there's some uh, concerning signals from both of those companies, but it's important for people to understand uh, that the outcome here is not yet determined. Uh, That's why we're gonna continue to follow this story very closely here on real vision we're going to report the facts as they come out uh and that's the thing that I think it's most important for people to understand uh that this 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 may or may not be over this is part of a a much broader chain of events when you look at this big picture uh dating back to the beginning of the year when we saw the uh fed begin to hike rates we saw We saw the prices, obviously, across the crypto complex begin to decline, the so-called crypto winter. Uh, Then after about five months of that this year, we saw the Terra Luna ecosystem collapse, followed shortly thereafter by 3 Arrows capital imploding, filing for bankruptcy in July. Obviously, some of the names that we've talked about here, BlockFi, uh, Voyager, Celsius, and others, also filing for bankruptcy during a similar time frame, Then we get the FTX collapse, and now we have these concerns, and they are just concerns, but we're gonna follow those. We're gonna unpack them very closely here uh, in the uh, remaining week of this year, uh, and of course, also in 2023. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's my key takeaway. That's what I'm gonna be focused on uh, in the next year, Jeremy.
1: We came so close to getting through a whole show without mentioning FTX. We were, we were right there. Ash, it's impo- it's impossible hosting- to do. <laughs> in, in this day and age, it is certainly so. Pleasure having you on the show today, my friend. Uh, as always, uh, great to be with you.
2: Always a pleasure to be here with you, Jeremy. Thanks so much.
1: All right. We're going to let Ash get back to his vacation. That is it for us today. If you are not a subscriber, please do not for- forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free For those of you watching on YouTube, remember to subscribe and hit that notification bell so you can keep up with us every time we go live. Join us again tomorrow, Ash will actually be back to do a year in review with Dan Roberts from Decrypt, two of the best in the business, uh, sharing their thoughts on 2022 in the crypto space. We will see you live at noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.